0: scripture reading this morning is Ephesians 1, 15 through 18. It says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease to give thanks to you as I remember you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, You may perceive what is the hope to which he has called you. Uh, We are in this series on stories of um, refuge, kind of what does it look like for us as a congregation to be a uh, safe place, right? a safe haven, a spiritual safe haven. Uh, And I know I've had some conversations with some people around, you know, just the idea of people who have, kind of walked away from organized faith structures because of and usually there's a reason uh, and becoming more and more acceptable to talk about is the idea that people have actually experienced spiritual trauma whether it was an abusive leader in a church uh, or just overpowering, domineering or uh, other pieces and, and, and for whatever reason people have been hurt and they have left and there hasn't been a through. what does healing look like when you are hurt? What's a healthy way to respond to that? <clears throat> or even some of these people have been hurt and they have found to find their voice, but they were in a space where their voice couldn't be heard. Um, and, and some of us really understand that. I see even head nodding, yes, yes. At the same time, some of us have had such a joyful, rich tradition in the church There's always been this understanding of faith and commitment that even when we talk about spiritual trauma or or, or abuse and and basically saying the church needs to take some responsibility for this, some of us don't fully understand it yet. Well, that's never happened to you, so your lens or perspective... Might be different. Or um, some of the culture of, you know, I coached Little League Baseball for 10 years, and if a kid got hit by a ball and started crying, you just look at him like, rub some dirt on it, get back out there, right? And sometimes that's how the church has responded. Oh, something has happened, or whatnot. Well, oh, maybe it's not rub some dirt on it. Well, just, just pray a little bit more and get back in the game without an acknowledgement that throughout times or through history, there's been some wrong. And to acknowledge that, to work on reconciliation, healing it. And maybe sometimes even there's nothing that can be done. I can't fix it. I can't go back and wave a magic wand or put a special Band-Aid over, you know, that incident. But sometimes when we're wronged or we're hurt throughout history, even just the acknowledgment and someone to listen. To say, yeah, that's horrible. I'm sorry you experienced that. But this goes back to our identity of weird congregation that cares deeply for one another. To, is, is there a way we can show up? Um, again, I think one of the greatest tools of ministry the church has ever experienced is a casserole. Mm-hmm. You show up to someone's house and you're like, I am sorry. And for whatever reason, if someone has a physical ailment, if I were to break my leg this week, which, let's not do that, um, right I'm sure we would be flooded with, with things. But somehow, when it's emotional trauma or spiritual trauma, we don't, we don't know how to show up. Um, and so, so that's kind of some of where we're just talking about what does it actually mean? to become a spiritual safe haven. And so we're looking intently at some of our language, we're looking intently at what people experience, um, and hopefully even educating ourselves, because we can get in the habit of this is just what we do. We've always done it this way, and we don't necessarily see. And so last week we were in uh, the introduction to Esther, and Queen Bashir Um was basically asked you know the the time is a crazy king and this is happening in the the structure of israel was conquered they had captives that were taken back and they've been there a few generations um but there's israelites jews living not in israel but but under Persian rule and and the king through the big feast that he wanted to parade his wife out in front of everyone to demonstrate how beautiful she was, whatnot. And she defied the king. She said, no, you're not going to use me this way. I'm not going to just walk around in front of all your drunken officials um, for your pleasure. And and she refused the status quo. And it scared them. Because if, if she refuses, what if that inspires the other officials' wives to stand up for themselves? And if, every, and, and if that goes back to all the different providences and then all the women in the whole thing, and they start standing up for themselves, uh, what will happen? And, and it says, uh, oh, I wrote it down on my notes, which I should bring up with me. Hold on. Um, the uh, In verse 18 of chapter 1, it says, you know, if all of this happens, this is their fear, there'll be no end of contempt and wrath. Right? What they were afraid of is disrupting the status quo. And sometimes in our faith structures, in our coming to church, we've always liked it a certain way. And and if when we have to lean into change, it, it may disrupt the status quo. It may change what we do or, or language we use. And, and the, the fear of change can paralyze people. And as we look as a congregation to this idea of becoming a spiritual safe haven, we have to say there might be some things we need to change. And we need to make sure that we have eyes to say, and not just let's throw everything out, let's everything, but, but to be open. What do we need to change? What do we need to be aware of? What areas do we need to take responsibility? for how do we walk alongside, and I really want this to be a journey of discovery and not just a, like, do this, don't do that, and 2022 we can't do that anymore. That I don't, I don't think that helps, because it doesn't bring understanding. But I don't want us to be paralyzed by fear of change, that we're not maybe willing to give up something that has been sacred to us in order to do what's right for other people. And that's the challenge, and that's kind of the story, and so, um, uh, The king basically strips the queen of her title, takes away her crown, and he starts talking to his advisors. And so now we're kind of Esther chapter 2. And his advisors, in all of their wisdom, basically, you know, we need to replace her. And in Persia, there's 127 different providences. And so an edict is sent out that all of the beautiful young virgins from each providence need to be gathered up and then taken to some of the the royal eunuchs who are over the court. Out of each providence, one is selected to go back to the royal harem. Uh, Right, so 127 women taken not by choice uh, and they go into a year of beauty treatments Right, a year of foils and whatnot, and, and how to walk, how, what not, like I, a, a year. After a year, each one of them gets to spend one day with the king, uh, and one evening. Uh, and whoever pleases the king the most um, <laughs> wins. She gets to become queen. But is that really winning? right, sometimes, and this is where really the language today, what we want to talk about is the lens in which we see things influences our perspective. It influences how we we talk about things. There was a prominent um, pastor of pastors, meaning he taught and led other pastors, um, trained them on doing sermons, all of that. He did a fairly, um, at least well-known series on Esther. And this individual, uh, it very, there's no nice way to put it, very male, masculine driven, conquer authoritarian view. He portrayed this story of Esther as, as almost this beautiful thing that Esther, Esther won the beauty pageant. This is like winning Miss America. And this this was the lens in which he portrayed the book of Esther. And the challenge is if you actually read the text, you have a person who their ancestors are not, they're not even living in their homeland because they were taken captive, gets drug into this selection process, and you don't get a choose. We've deemed that you're one of the most beautiful people in this province. You're going. There's no choice in that. It's called human trafficking. You all have to go through a year of beauty treatments and whatnot, and then whichever one of you pleases the king the most becomes queen. That's sexual exploitation. This, is, But the lens, right, the lens in which we look at the text, are we describing this as, Esther, and it's just this glorious thing that's happened to her, and and she gets to win the beauty pageant, or there is some things that are deeply wrong going on. Now, the argument here too will be like, well, you know, at that time, they weren't doing anything wrong. They weren't breaking any laws of the land. It was kind of customary this sort of thing just happened. It was culturally acceptable, uh, maybe even socially moral at the time. And so they're not breaking a law. And how often have we used that as an excuse to do harm to others? Or maybe just not do right. Well, it's, it's, it's the law. But I think the question that we have to always come back to is, is it, maybe it's not illegal, but is it just? Is it right? And is it safe? It may have been legal at the time, but I'm going to go on a limb and say it probably wasn't safe for those 127 women taken away from their homes, their province, their areas, forced into a harem. Uh, I don't know that that is safe. Now, they had provision. If you were in the harem, you probably ate better. You had people attending to you and like, look at all the good we're doing for them. We gave them an education, so that gives us the right to uh, exploit them, right? Uh, so the question even as we look at things, and even the history of America, and schools around indigenous people, slavery, the way we've treated women, I mean, it was, and you guys, I've shared this example many times, You know, the rule of thumb it was morally acceptable for a husband to train his wife as long as he didn't use a stick that was thicker than his thumb. Not only was it okay, it was his response. It, it is your moral responsibility, which means if you don't, you are failing. But it's okay because it wasn't illegal. It was actually socially acceptable at that time. It was even encouraged. But was it safe? Was it just? Was it right? And so sometimes we have to be drawn, even as we look at scripture, we look at church history, we have to look deeper than, was it just acceptable? Was it just the norm? Was it the status quo? Was it legal? And to say, oh, we got to step into this and go a little bit deeper. And sometimes when we do that, it's not comfortable for us. Sometimes when we do it, we take that deeper look, we actually go, oh, I've actually done that before. I was actually part of that part. All right, now what do I do with that? What do I do with the knowledge that I was part of maybe not creating a safe place for someone? We have to own, learn from, grow. How are we changing that? Um, Another story I want to share... Sensitively, I guess. Um, and I, what I don't want to have happen, and you guys have heard me through this series, it's not about like, let's bash the church in church history, because there's this hope in a divine God who loves us so deeply, but sometimes we just miss it. And we're clueless. Uh, so there was, uh, and many of you know I did youth ministry for a long time, and uh, there's a incident in North Portland where uh, a nonprofit was trying to come alongside a church. The church was predominantly people of color, um, specifically African American. Uh, and this director was there with this young youth pastor. It wasn't me, this is clarifying. Uh, and they're they're talking about this outreach they want to do and all these plans. Um, and there was uh, the pastor and the elder from the African-American church that were there. And they're excited. They're trying to build this partnership, and you know, they're going to do great things. And and I, the intent, I think, is entirely holy, entirely right. They wanted to do good, but sometimes even good intent, right? Well, I didn't intend to hurt them, but you still did. So what do you do? Well, but my intention wasn't there, and we try to absolve ourselves of responsibility because we had no ill intent. Um, it's also the, reminds me of the quote, "The road to hell is paved with good intentions," right? Um, so, so they're talking about it. they're actually excited, and, and so the guy's going to bring in all these youth groups, student kids, and they're going to do this big outreach. And, and one of the, the elder from the African American church says "Well, how are you going to pay for this? How are we going to, you know, the students going to do all of this?" And the young youth pastor, just full of excitement, begins to lay out his plan, and he, I mean, it's brilliant. Um, it's like here's what we're going to do uh, we're getting ready to have a big banquet at our church and we are going to do a slave auction and we're going to have the students walk up across the stage and as they walk up their up above is going to be kind of their name what school they go to and kind of what they want to do to, to earn money basically whether it's yard work babysitting all of that um, and so they're going to parade. And then in that moment, the congregation gets to bid on them. And the highest bidder, they go and work for them. That money goes to the missions trip. And then all this good stuff is going to happen. And he is just excited about it. And completely unaware. And I'm going to just... In that moment, with the pastor of that church with the elder of that church to say, in that context, I don't know that they were feeling safe in terms of, let's partner with this organization. Now, I have, I mean, reality is, uh, this, and maybe you've seen this, uh, we've done, I was a youth pastor, we we did hire a team, right? We had a bulletin board, and there was, but it was just context and how we do it, right? His lens And, oh, well, it talks about being slaves to Christ, and I'm sure that's what he meant. You know, our perspective or our lens in the context of how we create and how we speak and even words we use matter, right? There's different ways of doing things. We did the hire the so bulletin, kids' space, what they're willing to do, and you could just go and, like, pull that, oh, I want to hire this kid for yard work, right? Different contexts. Same thing, and I don't think there's anything wrong with kids earning their missions trip and all of that. I'm not saying that. Um, I'm not saying it's not you know, let's do a banquet and get the whole church you know involved, but but the language matters. Knowing who you are having a conversation with matters, right? We talked about trauma-informed care, which just means we're going to be aware in our language that. We're not gonna use words or, or use space that might be re-traumatizing or dismissive of someone else's trauma, right? So the lens in which we use matters. And I'm gonna tell you you uh, a conversation uh, with a, like, there was no ill intent. He was excited about his program. He wasn't aware of how offensive he was. Uh, but that doesn't make it right it doesn't make it just it doesn't make it safe and so there's even stuff that that we may do within this congregation or words we put up or structures and like well that wasn't our intent we were just trying to do good we are trying to raise money for the mission strip and sometimes we even use that right the ends justify the mean but we were raising money for this cause it was such a beautiful cause a good cause I mean, if some people got their feelings hurt along the way, it's okay. They need to just rub some dirt on it, get back at it. What does it look like to really lean in and try to create a space that is a spiritual safe haven? That people who have been wounded, where there has been hurts, where there's been judgment or criticism or isolation or whatever um, the realm is that somehow when there is a a hunger to connect with the divine again and I think we're in a state where people after these last several years they're looking for deeper meaning and there's this wonder is there actually a God there's this draw back to the mysterious God of love but I'm scared because of Or I want to, but I just don't know if I'll be safe. Will I be accepted? One of the interesting things about Esther also, and I'm not going to go too deep into it, um, is just the idea that Esther was also told that she was being selected, is that she should hide her identity. Don't let them know that you're a Jew because if they do, you may be treated differently, more poorly. You may not gain favor and have the resources while you're in this state. And how many times people come and whatever it is, walking through the church hurt, well, don't let them know you're divorced. Don't let them know you're an addict. Don't let them know that you're struggling with sexual identity or have other intentions. Come just as you are, as long as you don't disrupt the status quo. We accept everybody, as long as you fit in. What does it look like for us to become a spiritual safe haven. And there are challenges to it. Now, I'm going to tell you throughout this thing and, and Esther, this broken piece, and this is like next week, I don't only do gloom and doom. Uh, God shows up in this story. And there's mistreatment, there's abuse, there's all of that. Um, and yet God shows up in this story and he uses this horribly broken situation to save the people of Israel, to save the Jews puts Esther in a spot, we're going to look again next week Esther in a spot, in just the right moment, in the right position to do immense good and the reality of no matter where we are in our own broken stories or what our own stories from our past is, that there is this ability with this mysterious divine God who loves us so immensely, to redeem our broken stories to take our, our hurts and heal them and use that story to be able to encourage another to seek healing as well. Right? That's, the, that's the hope we have. That's what we're longing for even in this series. is Where do we see God showing up even when the circumstances are not so great? But how do we see? And sometimes we literally have to take a pair of glasses. Because right now you guys are all just fuzzy faces, by the way. And we have to put on a different lens in order to see clearly. And I think more often than not, we have to take off a lens because it's influenced. I actually wanted to bring like some 3D glasses, and I couldn't find any. Right? But, but sometimes, like we actually have a different lens that we have to take off. Maybe our spirituality is so rooted in patriotism that we can't see how that may not be well if, if it's hurt someone else, or Uh, evangelical, hardcore, Christ-centered piece, and that's the lens, and we don't see where that hurts, or our political stance, or whatever, and we, it's not necessarily we need clearer lenses, but we actually have to, for a moment, take off a lens and say, I just want to see through the eyes of Jesus. Where is this just? Where is this right? Where is this safe God? And maybe... My social economic status doesn't let me understand the houselessness and, and therefore it keeps me from loving them. And you gotta take off the lens. I had a great conversation with Will, um, came down to serve two weeks ago. I'm telling your story, I didn't ask for permission. <laughs> uh, came down, I tried to ask ahead of time, but I didn't even know I was gonna share this. Um, uh, came down to night strike and, and serving and and knowing and aware, he's heard stories from others who have come, but he just hasn't had the opportunity and he said, we Coming down a certain night strike, which is underneath the Burnside Bridge, and we have stations and whatnot, his assumption still was he was going to meet a lot of angry people. People were upset, maybe fighting over food, maybe didn't get popcorn quite the way he wanted, popcorn thrown back at him because he, he worked at the popcorn and pet food station. Um, and and there was still, like, he was coming, leaning into this. I don't know how comfortable he was, but leaning in. Right, which changes our view. When you open yourself up to new experiences, it allows you a different lens. And he was blown away. He's like, so many people were just so nice. They were patient. They were giving popcorn to other people and getting it for people. Their gratitude and the whole scenario changed his perspective. Right, so sometimes we're in a spot where it's like, all right, and this morning I want to encourage you, Lord, give me your eyes to see. And at the same time, we have to take off other lenses and and set it down and let maybe some of our principles that were right, fair, status quo, not against the law, morally acceptable, and we need to take some of those off. And I can't tell you what those are. Like, that's your work to do with God. Prayer, reflection. What lenses do you need to take off? What lenses do you need to put on so we can see clearly and we can position ourselves in a spot where we are safe, just, and right for people who are going to walk through our doors and visit us, or that we have conversations with, or even we bump into his neighbors or coworkers around the coffee pot. I want to leave you with this uh, verse. Um, Psalms 89, verses 13 through 15. And Psalms says right into God, he says, You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand. High. Strong is your hand. High your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Isn't that our heart? Regardless of what we're doing here, righteousness, justice, steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Happy are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. My hope, my desire is that we get into that. That we're willing to do the hard work of examining our lenses because we want to be safe, we want to be just, we want righteousness to prevail. One of the languages um, also doing this Franciscan school of um, first virtual direction. One of the Franciscan... Uh, Definitions of social justice is restoring beauty to that which is broken. And so as we walk in the world, as we interact with our neighbors, what does it look like to restore beauty to something that was broken? Whether it's the story of Esther, the story of relationships we may have. And I just like that. Right? When God created... All of us, as well as creation, he looked out and said, this is good. And throughout history, it's been broken. (laughs) What does it look like to restore beauty to that which is broken?